I split my time between here in the UK or or elsewhere in Europe. Um, obviously, you know, work stuff and whatever. But yeah, but I live here. Um, yeah, more or less. Uh, yeah, some of my friends that describe me as the most the most Brazilian gringo that they know. What does that entail exactly? It's just that certain things that um, some of my friends, certain things that they find uh, quite mundane about living here still really excite me. <laughs> you know, these, these, the, the basic sensations of sitting on a, on a yellow plastic table outside a, a, a dank tile bar in a street corner, having a, a ridiculously cold beer, you know, things like that still appeal to me, you know? Uh, <laughs> so uh, it was in those circumstances. I learned Portuguese actually. <laughs> I basically hit an emotional wall at, with work uh, toward the end of last year. It was, it was all this stuff like building up during the pandemic. And I finally just had to take, you know, a couple of weeks off and last minute I, I found a cheap, flight to Aruba. So I, I flew down there and spent a few days down there. And it's just this. Oh, nice. I'm a pretty fair or pale person. And, you know, and I live in New York City, I, I don't get a ton of sun. And it's a, it's a very obvious thing where people tell you, you know, oh, the sun will, the, the sun is good for you and it will improve your mood. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you go there and actually like sit in the sun for a few days. And it's like, oh yeah, no, this is actually having like a very tangible, effects on my on my physiology and mood it's so simple isn't it it's so simple and <clears throat> growing up in 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 northern europe uh actually i never i never take it for granted it's like here uh, you know most people i know they'd be avoiding the sun if they could you know the idea of sitting out in the street uh and 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 stepping out of the shade and you're actually inviting the sun it's completely alien everyone's trying to get out of it but for me i, I still feel after 10 years i still feel like i'm on i'm on holiday you know uh i'm always going to chase after that uh so yeah i see basic things i mean people would say this you know oh yeah just you know, go away get some sun or whatever and and you're like yeah yeah whatever and um and it it it's just it's miraculous <laughs> i mean that's as far, as i say especially coming from from you know uh you know the north of england i mean for me this is always going to feel like a you know a vacation in in spain in the 1980s you know no matter how long i stay here it's that thing of realizing that there are you know, millions of years of human evolution that yeah. <laughs> adapted us. It's worth it's worth listening. Yeah, it's worth listening to your grandparents about certain things. You know, they might they might know about know about stuff. Yeah. What brought you down there originally? Oh, uh, my partner's from here, so I actually lived in Italy for about about five years prior to prior to that. Um, but it was always the plan to to come down here and, and make make base here eventually so just got it's it's literally just 10 years since i arrived when you were younger and growing up in did did you did you grow up in liverpool is that right yeah 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 so yeah born in liverpool grew up there um but it's it's funny i, I realized the other day because i went back there for christmas and i realized that for much of the last 20 years i haven't actually lived there for most of the last 20 years i've either been traveling on tour or living in Italy or living in Brazil. But, you know, it changes, it changes quickly, but 
you know, most of my old friends are still there. It's still, it's still home. I get the the feeling, and, and this is all basically gleaned from you know the the many many bands that have have come from that city specifically. That maybe it's something sort of akin to what in the U.S. we would call the the Rust Belt. You know, cities like Detroit or Pittsburgh that are very that are very working class and very kind of industry centric. Yeah, it's it, it's it's probably similar. Um... It's and it's a city that doesn't really it doesn't let you go, you know. Um, and I think it's like those cities, like music cities, you know, like Detroit. Uh, even though we made music that wasn't necessarily associated with Liverpool, even though there was a, a, a rich tradition of, you know, the kind of thing we were doing going back to the to the late seventies. It's still hugely advantageous to be from Liverpool if you do music. I mean, it's one of the few cities in in Britain um, where you know eyes light up when they hear the word Liverpool. You know, anywhere in the world because of its music history. So there's it, there's there's a definite advantage to it, um, and educationally as well. I mean, growing up there, you know, being being kind of a you know a kid on the music scene and having all this all this wisdom then, all this kind of oral tradition, you know, pre-internet musical discovery was a real head start. Because it's like, a, it's a very small city actually, but it's, um, there's a lot of culture um, compressed into a, into a small space. And it's, and it, and it goes, and it's a port, so it's right up to the edge of the water. So it has like half the catchment area of a comparable city like Manchester, which is only 45 minutes away. Um, but there's something about Liverpool. It's about its influence. It was the main, it was the main contact point with, with the new world. You know, it was, I, I mean, a, a massive amount. I, I read a insane statistic about how much of North American emigration to the Americas actually went through Liverpool at some point. Like you would come from Germany or wherever else and you would, you would stop in Liverpool en route. And then vi- vice versa, we got, all the, we all, we got all the records first. We got, you know, rock and roll first. We got Scar first. We got all this stuff came in via the port. I have not heard the Scar thing. I mean, I, you know, I know obviously knowing what I know, how big of a presence it had in the 60s and obviously the the 70s but is it the same connection as far as the 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 west indies it's that same port connection yeah the oldest you know the oldest communities or some of the oldest communities in in britain um yeah it it was there, there was a there was a hell of a lot i mean this is the, the kind of untold um uh i guess it is told now but it wasn't for a long time like the 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 music and the bands that were actually influencing the Beatles, they were from the, you know, the West Indian community. They were from, from Toxteth. Um, and, and this, you know, this had a huge effect on, not, not on the city's um, perspective as well. It's, 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 it's worldview. And then, you know, I mean, through that, with the, with the success of the, uh, uh, of the Beatles and everything, I was talking to, how this put Liverpool on the map, um, not just for um, not just for music, for for film, television, actors. A lot of people 
got their breaks, authors, you know. A lot of people got their breaks because because of the Beatles, just because it was on the map. But at the same time, beyond that, um, I mean, my, my bandmate Mira, um, like she grew up in Bulgaria and, uh, you know, her parents said that the Beatles, the, like Beatles albums, if you were in Eastern Europe or somewhere else in the world, the people in Brazil have said similar, that basically the Beatles were the, were the internet of their day. It was, it was more or less the bridge. It was the, it was the, the, the conduit to discovery of anything, you know, even non-musical things. The huge bands coming out of there, you know, extend beyond all the Mersey Beat stuff. Mm-hmm. Echo and the Bunnymen is kind of the big one that jumps to mind as far as the 80s. But is there, yeah, whether in the 90s, you know, whether 30 years later or, you know, now, however <laughs> many years that, that's been, is, is there a sense in which the Beatles still kind of loom, loom large over the city? Well, they do because it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a huge industry. It's a, it's a tourist business. You know, it's, it's, it's massive. I mean, a big bulk of the tourism of the city is, uh, based on, uh, perhaps slightly less so now. Um, uh, but it does loom, but it, it, it just became music that you didn't have to listen to anymore. I remember concluding in my, in my adolescence, I didn't actually have to put a Beatles record on. Um, you know, you had it all already, um, up there. Uh, um, but in, in the, the scene, uh, that came in the late seventies around Eric's club, uh, the scene that produced Echo and the Bunny Men, Teardrop Explodes, uh, Big in Japan, and then Pink Military, Pink Industry, Dalek Eye, Wild Swans, all of this. Um, they actually, the, 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 the guy who ran that club, Roger Eagle, who was the DJ, there um he told all all the bands you know the last thing you should do is listen to the beatles just don't listen to the beatles at all if you do you're going to be completely fucked um that 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 it would somehow just 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 pollute their vision would be completely polluted and they just end up sounding like the same this the same as everyone else um so jane casey from from uh, big in japan and and pink industry told me that um i actually joined joined Pink industry. They 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 reformed about ten years ago. So I'm a I'm 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 a a, a guest member of that group. I did. I mean, to be honest, when when I first started hanging out in Liverpool, it was uh, it was still all people from that scene, and um, I probably feel more connected to that scene, even though I was quite a bit younger and too young to have ever ever been there. I feel more connected to that than than anything that happened since in the city. To be honest. Having said that, um, it did produce some amazing records that were aside from from this. They it produced the um, the Lars album in in 1990, which was incredible. It still sounds incredible, uh, even though the band themselves didn't think so. And then Liverpool had an actual a, a big pop cultural moment in the 90s around the Cream nightclub. So there was. Scouse House, you know, we had our own genre of of dance music, and that was blaring out of every single bar or or club in the city centre. You know, in the, from the mid nineties, and to be honest, that's what Ladytron was formed within. I mean, we we built a studio, um, a little studio in the city centre, and we were sandwiched between these other project studios that were making Scouse House and 
that influence, even though this wasn't our bag, you know, we, 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 we did underground parties. We were very much more coming from this, you know, this scene, stereo lab and things like this. Uh, but the, the Scouse house actually had, had an influence on, I think it made us more disco actually. It just seeped through the walls by osmosis uh into our early productions and made us a lot more disco than we than we we, we might have expected to be and and in that 1998 i mean my my friends who were, who were going to cream every week then i mean they describe it as a cultural high point you know uh and i guess in liverpool it might have been it sounds like you were able to find some real kinship with with some of the mu- the music that was bubbling up at the time. I mean, you, you, you named Stereolab specifically. Yeah, I mean, they were one of my favorites when I was when I was still at school. They were, you know, it's one of the, you know, you have bands that you're into and and um, and they 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 come and go and and they're they're one of the few that that I never stopped. I never stopped loving, you know. Yeah, and they they never really stopped either. No, <laughs> no. I mean, this this is what I mean. We came from more of this this kind of this underground DIY lo-fi thing um the 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 instrumentation um we were using it wasn't like it wasn't fetishized we basically just bought cheap keyboards organs monosynths things that we would find at flea markets for very little money compared to what what it costs now you're talking about picking up things for the cost I'll give you 20 pounds for this keyboard you know things like that things that cost thousands now so we were really just using um, the instruments we had available more in that in that more in that spirit than because I think some people expected us to be or they they interpreted us or wanted us to be some kind of 80, early eighties revival band you know or something but we 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 were never that really to be honest it was it was always punk in what we did so buying this flea market synths and, and instruments that was that was less an aesthetic choice and more just a, a product of i guess uh your financial situation at the time yeah both i mean even even though it did have aesthetic appeal uh, often we would get we'd get keyboards and we didn't know what they did you know we didn't know what they sounded like it just looked the part and we said oh well that's worth a try it's not like now that that, that there's a, a collector's market for this for this stuff but having said that the record we were we were aiming for the kind of things that we heard on records we loved we just didn't know exactly how to how to get there there was also there was a there was a really unique um shop in liverpool called the keyboard corporation at that time as well i i to be honest i seemed like the only customer i was the only person ever in there and i barely bought anything but they 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 closed down at some point and and, uh, and and I was walking past and I saw the owner like waving to me furiously. And uh, I went in and he said, we're, we're going basically take what you want. Uh, so because I'd been such a loyal, non-paying customer, he, he gave me gave me some keyboards when they shut down uh, that are still in use to this day, actually. I, I know that when the band was really forming, you you were I think I believe a pretty active DJ at the time. What was your musical background as far as I guess as far as actually making music on instruments? Uh, I, it was uh, self taught child uh, by error. Um, the most important thing was because I was DJing 
every week, sometimes a couple of times a week. I don't even, I, I don't even understand how I did it to be honest now, but um, a lot of, you know, because there was this huge dancing going on in Liverpool um, and elsewhere, of course, but Liverpool was really the, 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 the fulcrum of it at that point, but we were doing underground parties. It was more of a, you know, in the alternative thing, we played like, you know, we had like Northern Soul and psych rock parties and things like that. So I, I was playing records like this, um, which was itself just, um, yeah, just a, a, an informal musical education. So a lot of the, the musical ideas that were the instincts that were flowing into the, at least the early stuff and even to now, um, it wasn't necessarily coming from the records that we were associated with, you know, it was more, okay. Um, oh, this is Northern soul tunes. Just give me an idea. I'm going to run over to the studio now and, and, and record it on these uh, plinky plonky keyboards that we picked up from a flea market. And then the end result was, was what became our first album. There's a big extent to which the, the way something ends up sounding on record is a product of the tools that you have in front of you. It's basically physically impossible to do something that sounds one of those classic soul records from the sixties on again, a, you know, a thrift store keyboard. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the end result sounds like something that, that is disassociated from either. And one thing that was very, um, important it wouldn't again kind of accidental but we never had demos you know the idea of oh we've recorded a demo i mean and this was more associated with you know traditional guitar bands or whatever but you would record a demo and then you would go in the studio and record it properly but there was no that process was completely streamlined with us it was like you you record it that's the track you might add to it but that's it there's no there's no um you know dislocation because you know the classic thing of demoitis, you know, uh, you know, having some great version of a track, so we've got to go back in again and do it. We never had that, thankfully. It was just, oh, you know, we've done this. No, actually, I'm going to stick something else on. Okay, fine. Uh, but we never had, um, we never had demos. So what 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 came out was was as close to the original um, idea uh, as possible, basically. The more modern analog to that is almost the the tyranny of choice that you get with something like Pro Tools where you could spend, you know, a week working on, you know, one, one drum track and, and just sort of end up completely, you know, completely gutting the humanity out of a song. Yeah, this is, this is a problem as well because I, I, we didn't have it because we didn't, we didn't know, uh, you know, we were self-taught. We didn't know half the features that the DAW software had. So we'll be using it in a very rudimentary way. And, and all those, that, that, as you say, this tyranny of choice didn't really reveal itself to us. Um, even, well, to, to some extent now, but uh, not, not back then. So we, ne- we never had that, had that problem. Um, a lot of people around us, other people in Liverpool and some other, other producers in Europe and that that were friends with us close, close to us at the time. I detected that they had this huge problem in finishing music. It was, it was finishing albums, deciding something that is self-produced, deciding that it's actually finished and ready, incredibly difficult. Um, and I saw people spend, spend years, literally years and years with, with um, what sounded like a finished record to me. And only under huge external pressure would they end up, 
you know, you know, conceding that it was ready and be forced to release it. At, at which point they might have missed their moment, you know. Yeah, the the, the democratization of recording did introduce a whole uh, swathe of new new problems, you know, um, you've self-discipline, you know, you know, at this point in the process, whether it's the Ladytron stuff or the myriad bands that you've, you've, uh, collaborated with or, or produced is how similar is your current process to that one that you almost kind of cobbled together in the early days? It's, it's not that different. It's just that, um, you know, the learning curve, uh, you know, is, 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 is obviously gone. Um, but it's, it's not really that different to be honest. A lot of the, a lot of the time the, there's been a temptation to shift, um, you know, the, the, the methodology, um, to something more, I don't know, more compatible with, with, you know, if you go in the studio to mix or whatever, um, and everyone has a very standard, uh, setup. And you have to adapt to that to a certain point. So it's crossed my mind at you know various times. Well, if we worked like that in the, in the, at the beginning, would we be saving uh, saving time and effort later? But then, as soon as you start getting on with a new project, you haven't got time to learn something else. So uh, we more or less stayed in the same you know more more or less the same methods, just with uh, you know faster machines and you know. Um, more you know more of our toys around us the four of you having worked together for as long as you have that you're all you're all you're all very comfortable with one another and you're all very familiar with each other's processes but when you're when you're getting into the studio with somebody else when you're producing someone else there's an extent to which you have to adapt to their workflow yeah yeah of course yeah definitely so this would be yeah working with working with other people that definitely be more of an adaptation um, in the recording, pro- if not in the writing process. But um, yeah, you can't. You, well, everything I say, everything's standardized on Pro Tools. You know, if you just if you turn turn up with anything other than Pro Tools and expect to be working on it in the studio, it's just uh, you know. You show up with your four track Tascam. <laughs> yeah hey guys you know this works yeah i know so yeah to some extent you're right you do it you do you do have to adapt subliminally at least um but yeah i've had um yeah i had some very good experiences my, I, my, my rule is that I, I don't work with other artists unless there is a rapport there and unless i think that we can do something um amazing um so I'm I'm really quite choosy. So the the I did I did a lush record when they did their their, their little comeback. I love doing that. Um, not least because they were one of my favourite bands when I was when I was younger. Um, I did quite a bit of work with um with a singer down in Sao Paulo called Leah Paris. Uh, I've done about five tracks with her, which is kind of in the in the realm of Lady Tron. But uh, her voice is very different. Yeah, this very, very, very picky. Um, you know what it has to feel like? It has to feel like we're in a band together. It, it, I, I know a producer band relationship wouldn't work. What does it mean to have a rapport with someone in this context? Well, just um, well, just 
just in terms of, you know, knowing the people beforehand, already understanding them, um, already knowing their humour, knowing that the, 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 the kind of creative ideas um, that you're going to put in uh, are going to be mutually appreciated. Um, you know, this, this kind of thing, just, uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately like friendship, but obviously when you start working together, it's not necessarily friendship yet. Sometimes it turns out to be uh, quite the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't gone the other way, thankfully for me, not yet. (laughs) At what point in the process was it clear that the rapport was there with Lady Tron? Well, we the whole the whole thing at the beginning was 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 um, you know it was it's such a blur because I felt like we thing it, things accelerated. We we started getting some traction when we didn't really expect it, and it was it was you know we we were not necessarily ready for it. We had to really learn on our feet. Um, so there wasn't a lot of time. <laughs> there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of time to get to know each other that well, to be honest. Uh, but we did, and we were, you know, we were this little gang. We were just, you know, um, you know, we were just kids, um, you know, having fun and and feeling like anything was possible. I mean, I think about those those early early shows we did and and whatever it was. Uh, you know, just jumping on a plane and going to Berlin and and doing a doing a gig in an abandoned bank, or uh, going to Paris and and playing in a in a in a bowling alley, like on a bowling alley in a metro station, and and this whole time we were just having these little adventures like this, and we were obviously bonding through them. At the same time, we never bothered going to play in London or anything boring like that. And I think that the industry actually. Ex- ex- no, it was anything the industry actually expected us to do, all these things, these rites of passage. We just completely bypassed them, just ignored them. Uh, I don't think we played a, like I had a proper headline show uh, in London until the first album was already released. Uh, we just, uh, there was a certain, you know, um, maybe maybe just on my part, but certain provincial chip on shoulder <laughs> antipathy towards London, perhaps had a, had a part in that, but mainly it's just because we had better things to do, you know, Oh no, someone's just going to buy our flights and we're going to go and play Barcelona. Sure. Let's go and do that. You know, rather than uh, going down to London in a van and playing some back room of a pub to, to, to five people. So we skipped all that phase. And I think it only, uh, it only benefited us ultimately. There are obviously like different levels of of glamour. Again, as you said, playing in the in the back of a pub in London obviously isn't the same as playing a huge, beautiful venue there. But it's not as though playing a bowling alley in Germany is a, an especially glamorous experience either. No, no, not not glamour. It, it definitely wasn't glamour, but it just it just felt um, these were just adventures, and also the, it was so much more educational. You know, if we if we went to Germany or, or or Spain or France at that point, late nineties, and you're still really talking about pre-internet, in in, in terms of music, um, 
you would learn so much. You would come back with so many records. You would meet like fellow traveler producers. Every, to be honest, everywhere we went, there was already a Lady Tron there. You know, you know the way in in the uh, in the Asterix cartoon where there's like the kind of the the different village and they go there and it's almost exactly the same. There's a bard and there's a there's the big obelisk guy and everything's almost identical. And it was like we found that was everywhere. Everywhere we went, there seemed to be they seemed to have their own Lady Tron already. And everyone as well, everyone thought that they were the only people doing it in the world at that point. <laughs> Uh, ourselves included of that draft class who were some of the the lady trons that really that really kind of did make it along with you who are some of the ones who i guess you know we've all heard of well i think that the i don't necessarily um i mean there was a band called galactica in spain that were that were friends of ours and they they did okay down there but in terms of getting big big i'm not sure whether any did but there were kind of fellow fellow travelers for example in germany the scene that we we dropped into there was through a lot was you know they weren't they weren't ladies ones by 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 uh any description but they were bands that we would be associated artists we would be associated with like jeans team and chicks on speed and um there was a, a big record they weren't the, the band were different but tokatronic and consola, they, they, there was this scene around that, that in Germany we, we were seen as some kind of equivalent. There was th- that moment, actually, like 99, 2000, 2001, there was this, this kind of nebulous, undefined, new kind of electro thing. And it was far, far more interesting, far more interesting and exciting than what it became just like a year or six months later, as soon as it was defined as Electroclash, right? And this became, it, 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 well, it, it was an effort to commodify all of our work and trademark the, the, the genre and profit from, from everyone else's work. And all the artists involved that we ever spoke to hated the idea of it. But I mean that scene that existed right before was 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 incredible and and so exciting and so colorful. But with hindsight, to be honest, even though um, we got kind of famous for slagging off Electroclash and saying we're not part of it, because we got put on magazine covers and say, here they are, you know, here's the champions of this new thing, Electroclash, you know. And we were stuck in the studio for for most of 2002 with no voice and no way of resisting this. And so by the time we came out of the studio, we were so sick of what this thing had become. It was all part of, it was all about how much money was being spent. It was really ostentatious, super capitalist. And, and we, we hated it. So, so the first kind of batch of interviews we did with, you know, like it was a buzz record, that second album, we, we, we seemed to spend the whole time distancing ourselves from Electroclash, uh, which is quite amusing when you look back now. But having said that, I do look back and think that that moment was amazing and many of the records were amazing. And the way that it got that music and those ideas out into places where it really had no right to be. It wasn't until we played in, 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 when we toured in North America after the second album that you would go to, you, you'd end up rocking up in places in the, in the Midwest or whatever and you'd, you'd find these kids and it was there, it was there, you know, um, tunnel to this magical 
world that they perceive to be going on in New York or Berlin or whatever, or London. And so, you know, I started to appreciate it a lot more. I was like, this is, even though we didn't like to be, you know, really just press ganged onto a sinking ship, you know, um, with, with, but with hindsight, it was really quite wonderful. And I don't, to be honest, I'm not sure whether anything happened since or whether anything like that will happen again. It was, um, it was quite a quite unique moment. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've revised, uh, my, 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 my position on electric clash over the years. We had Fisher Spooner in New York. They were obviously, you know, one of the kind of, I, I guess you would say preeminent electro clash bands. And, 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 and I don't think that, I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily a reflection of the band specifically. It sounds like it's more of an issue with the way a lot of this felt like a product of record labels. Yeah. It was, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest, I, I mean, um, I've got some sympathy for, for Larry T and it's like, I met Larry two years later. Again, and he felt like he'd be com- he'd been completely thrown under the bus by all the artists, you know. It was just a lot. It was mostly there was there was um, a gravy train there, and um, and he he you know wasn't necessarily the one who was who was trying to exploit it. I also thought that I was un- uncomfortable with how. The music was was annexed by the fashion industry as well, and as soon as I saw that happening, it was just well, this is this this thing has six months maximum, so we've been working on something that you know that had an indefinite life that we'd go on making records forever, and we've been we've been marched onto this sinking ship that's going to be going to be gone in six months. So to you know, to be fair, we you know we we were absolutely within our rights to 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 want to distance ourselves from it. But to be honest, every other artist I spoke to uh, thought the same. You know, even Miss Kit and people like that. Nobody wanted to do had, had anything to do with the word electroclash. But that moment that when that scene didn't have a name, you know, in the in the in the eighteen months, two years before, um, that was wonderful. This is worth noting that. That a lot of those bands didn't survive, and that and that and that you're still going. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. Despite, I mean, I mean, we we made that. Um, I mean, other things happened as well. I mean, with the the third album, uh, which a lot of people, which now, which a lot of people think is our is our best, and in some ways, yeah, I, in some ways, I agree. Um, we had a, a torrid time with this, like our. Our label, we, we we were in quite a safe position because we had a label in, in in North America and a label in the UK and Europe. And what happened if if one of the labels went went down, we still had the other one to fall back on. But the label in the in the in the UK, which was you know we didn't have the kind of relationship we had with them. The label in the US was amazing, Emperor Nort, and that was the best place to be. Um, they really they understood us, knew where our audience was. Um, they were a small independent label. We were a priority on it. They had money to spend. Uh, but the label in the UK was more of like a traditional pop label. And they, they marketed us as a pop group because they didn't really know what else to do. But they went bankrupt. Um, and then our label, Emperor Norton, in the, in the US got sold. Um, so we were practically left without a label uh, for that, that third album. Um, it was pretty much orphaned. 
Um, and the only reason the band survived is because that album was so good. I mean, we, we, we realized at this point that we didn't need labels anymore. We went out on the road, our, our tour, tours had sell out in minutes. Uh, we toured that album for two years without any support from a record label behind us. Um, and so, you know, that was to, to have survived, uh, Electra Clash and then survived that. I think surviving that was more of a, more of a test, to be honest. You were talking 2005. So. Yeah. Electra Clash would have been pretty much dead and buried at that point. Yeah, that was gone. And then, so, you know, we were, we were coming back with, which, with what should have been, um, it should have been our crossover record really, but then it, it more or less, it was more or less orphaned. Um, but then we went out on the road and we found that um, we'd carried on growing. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, yeah, it was a, it was a strange moment that, 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 that third album. I don't think, I don't even know whether people understand what happened. We tried not to complain about it. You know, we tried to just get on with what we were doing. Uh, but I don't realize, I don't know whether people realize how much um, difficulty, I mean, it almost didn't get made. There was, there was a strong chance that it wouldn't have been finished or released at all. It's a bad look to spend an entire press tour complaining about you know, <laughs> yeah. your label your situation. Label. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's just, it, it's, a, it's a shame. I mean, sometimes you get drawn into it, but I think, I think now um, enough time has elapsed to be able to talk about it, talk about it safely, you know, um, but there's a lot of, there's a hell of a lot of stories, um, especially around that electric clash thing that, that the people, I think we were, we were, you know, uniquely positioned witnesses to that. I think people don't know. And, uh, at some point we might write about a document in some way, because it was, it was a very interesting moment. Yeah. I mean, is there also a, a sense in which the fact that Electro Clash had come and gone, was that also working against you? I mean, had, was it was it oversaturated? Had people kind of had their fill? Well, yeah, it was by the time, to be honest, by the time that second album came out, it, it got very delayed, especially in the UK. It came out in the US in reasonably timely fashion. But by the time it came out in the UK, it was Christmas. Uh, and there'd already been a backlash against electric clash in the uk media and we had to basically face that off um so by the time we put the second the third record out um it was it was such a leap it was we were taken seriously by people who'd maybe written us off as part of all all that the, the electric clash thing so we i ran into to Tiger at one point in a in an event and he said congratulations i was like why he said for surviving electric clash we should have all gotten t-shirts <laughs> yeah we survived electric clash well you know that the, the the whole thing was when when we were doing like so the first you know around the around like 2002 because we were a band it counted against us in a sense it was like oh they're a real band you know, like it, it, Electric Flash has to be just two people in a project studio. It was almost like we were too authentic to fit in, um, which, you know, at, at the same time put us on the indie rock scene and we were completely inauthentic. Um, you know, this band doesn't even rehearse. You know? uh, they, haven't, they haven't paid their dues. They haven't played in, a, in the back of a pub to three people. Which you obviously had. Yeah, we played in, in in the back room of a pub to three people in Barcelona or something. It was different. Uh, 
But you know, it's like so we so we got we we got both sides of this. We got we you know that we 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 never fit in anywhere perfectly, and that's that's where we wanted to be. The whole idea was we were carving our own space. So if if at times we looked aggressive uh, in our you know distancing from 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 certain things, it was because of that. We was like, well, we've built this, we built this thing, and it's ours. Uh, we don't want to be in anyone else's orbit. Uh, we, 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 I mean, we, we toured, we've rarely, uh, opened for anyone. I mean, we did an early tour with Soulwax in the UK. Uh, they invited us on their very early days. Um, other than that, we spent six or seven years. We never opened for any or any other band. Um, and this was maybe not, not in, entirely, um, intentional. Um, but we didn't want to be, uh, in anyone else's orbit. I mean, the end of the um, at the end of the second album tour, actually, we got offered a load of a load more stuff. Like we we got offered like I think the Marilyn Manson World Tour, and turned it down. We wanted to get in the studio and record what would be which hour. Wait, wait, wait! I have to ask. I have to ask because obviously that would have been a, an interesting experience at very least. Is that is there a, reg- a regret? I mean, obviously things didn't end up great for Manson himself, but like, is there regret <laughs> of not having leaned into that weirdness? No, I think I, 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 I thought that they would hate us. I thought the audience would hate us. I, I thought it was going to be, we're just going to be uh, abused every night. We're going to have things thrown at us. I didn't think it was going to go well at all. Um, Peaches ended up coming in and doing it in our place. And I think that she didn't have a great time, even though she's far more, far more equipped for this <laughs> than we are. <laughs> um, but the only other time we, we, we did, like Trent Reznor invited us on the Nine Inch Nails, the European tour, but this was sometime later. This was like 2007. And we were, we had, there was some trepidation. We thought we'd heard horror stories about any band that opened for Depeche Mode had an awful time. It didn't matter who they were. And we thought that it might be like that. Um, and it wasn't, it was, it actually went really well. We picked up like a, like a new, a new, a, a new audience in Europe with, with, with this. So they did, they, I mean, we might've had like little pockets of resistance to it that any support band would get, but overall it was super positive. Um, we never got to play with Depeche Mode themselves. Unfortunately, we, we got invited to do it like a stadium tour in, in Eastern Europe, in the Balkans, um, like football stadiums, like we would have done the Levski Stadium in Sofia, where where Mira's from, and um, we we were down there ready to join the tour in Athens, and it's when Dave Gahan got very sick, and the whole tour was cancelled, unfortunately. So that was, I mean, that was something we wanted to lean into. That was absolutely ideal for us, but um, uh, despite the, the 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 warnings we'd had about Depeche Mode audiences, I think that would have worked great, but. Uh, it wasn't to be, and thankfully Dave got got over got over his illness. You know, specifically in that time that you described before in the recording of the third album, when again, you know, Electro Clash was in their rear view. There were struggles with the labels and everything else. Um, was there ever a point in the band's history when it wasn't clear that you were going to keep going? It, it I'd say by that point, it it just made us more determined. It was um, you know, earlier on in 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 our career, we didn't have a plan. It was like, okay, we've got these songs, so we'll put out a single. Oh, we've got these other songs, we'll put out an EP. 
let's put all this stuff together and make an album. Oh, this has gone well. Let's make another album. From the second album, that's the point where it went, okay, well, you know, we, we're established and, you know, we have a, you know, an opportunity here to, to make, make the records that we, that we want to. Um, it was, it was definitely clear in our minds. Um, uh, I mean, we, we, we'd already started making what became, uh, Velocifera when, when all these shenanigans were going on around the, around the third album. So there was never really a sense of, oh, you know, well, you know what, this, 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 we've, we've had these, these problems with labels. Let's, uh, let's just, uh, jack it in. No, it made us more determined, um, to, to, to carry on because, yeah, you can't, uh, you can't succumb to that. And also it, it was that moment when, when it was, it was becoming apparent that the, that artists could exist without labels as well. And um, that, you know, that was dawning just at the, at the right moment for us. So we'd, we'd seen how the industry was, the old industry was, we'd seen its collapse. We'd seen this new, new industry, which was actually temporary. It was assumed to be permanent. And then we got through to 2011, our fifth album. And there was a, there was another new industry, another new model, uh, just coming, coming in. And then we took a big long break. Um, you know, we took a, like maybe six, seven, six, seven year break. So that break was longer than it, than intended. Um, there wasn't a, a sense that, oh, maybe we won't do anything. It was just, you know, the time has to be right. Um, Helen did two solo albums. I mean, I, I produced the first one. Um, so in, in, we probably waited a little bit for a second album to be out before we, we started doing anything with Lady Chon again. Um, but yeah, there was not, um, there was never a, you know, a, a, a defeatism or anything like that. It was, we, you know, cause we, we were still, you know, we were doing well. We were, the tours were getting bigger and bigger. Um, the records were getting, uh, weirder. <laughs> um, I think actually the break, I mean, the break did us good in a way as well. Um, because we, we were able to hit reset creatively as well. Cause I think the first five, five albums, a certain evolution and autobiographical thread through them, you know, there's an arc to them. Whereas as soon as we'd taken a break, it was like, okay, let's make a Lady Tron record. Uh, um, and we, without really thinking about what had preceded it or, or thinking about the moment it was in. So I like I like the idea that we're in this band that exists outside of time. In preparation for this, I was reading some of the interviews that you did around the self-titled album in 2019, and and yeah, you had effectively said, you know, we knew there was going to be break. We we didn't know how long it was going to be. It was unfortunately a little bit longer than we expected. Obviously, you know, if, if I'm purely just looking down your your discography, that that sort of that belies the the situation a little bit because the technically eight years between albums is that's never the amount of time that a band spends on hiatus because obviously there's touring after the previous one and then there's, there's a process of putting the the next one together um but you know i mean there but there's also it seems to me that unless you're i don't know guided by voices that it that it's it's inevitable that there's going to be a little bit of slowdown in the cadence in which you're putting out records. 
Yeah, there, there, there is. I mean, we. I think um, 2015 is when we started putting putting the 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 the, the eponymous album together. So um, we we started on our hiatus on in 2012. Um, so it really wasn't that long, uh, but it was still longer than longer than we thought. Um, but it really it really wasn't that long. Um, and and to be honest, I mean, I mean, this record is coming out. Um, this record's coming out four years uh, since since the eponymous one, but that's obviously completely distorted, completely distorted by the pandemic. I mean, the same way that everyone's chronology has gone out the window now. No one really knows. No one remembers when anything took place. You know, the last four or five years are all just a blur, aren't they? So. Um, in the same sense with this album, we we were recording it three years ago. We started recording it three years ago, and obviously the you know the a, a stop was put to that after three days. Uh, we were recording in Mogwai Studio in Glasgow, Castle of Doom, and uh, it was just like just the beginning of March, um, twenty twenty. The first day we were kind of hold on, um, this is this isn't safe. <laughs> you know, we're not sure is this really is this right that we're here. Uh, then we took a day off. The next day we were too freaked out and we didn't go in. And then we decided, you know what, we're here. It, it's it's safe. We're okay. No one's told us not to do this, so let's just do it. Went and did another day, and. Um, some of the tracks that ended up on this album, we, we, we got into some partial shape, City of Angels and We Never Went Away. Um, and the, the studio engineer, Tony, he asked me, when's your, when's your flight back to Brazil? And, uh, and I said, oh, it's in about, um, it's in about 10 days or something like that. And he said, oh, well, have you not thought about flying back any sooner? You know, for example, tonight. You know, because everything was getting, remember how quickly things were escalating, how much worse everything was by the hour. We were all kind of on the fence, right? Because like we lived through H1N1, all these other things. And it's not that they weren't issues, but they weren't global pandemics in the way COVID was. No, no. I mean, we, 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 you know, there was, oh, we'll be okay. You know, um, there was a, a, a certain complacency about it. But we decided then to say, you know what, let's just go home. We'll carry on working on music. It won't be a problem. We'll use, use the time constructively. And, um, uh, Helen picked me up from the studio and, you know, in her car. And we, you know, we said, we'll go, go for one last drink before I leave town. I bought the first flight I could get out. And uh, I got into the car and, you know, it was like, you know, a bit drizzly, you know, you know, nighttime, kind of six, seven o'clock. Uh, uh, already dark there um and dancing queen by abba was on the radio and i just froze it was just the eeriest thing and i i said to helen are you getting that and she's like yes <laughs> basically we felt like we were in the first five minutes of the movie you know when people just didn't know how bad it was gonna be what was it about that song though it was just, it was just, it, it was, it was exactly the kind of music that would be playing at the, at the first five minutes of the movie when people don't know if, if that movie happened to be about Lady Tron <laughs> in particular. It's like a bait and switch. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, um, 
So then, you know, we got out and, and you know, I, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back home and work on music straight away. Uh, I didn't work on anything for, for ages because uh, I didn't, um, I found like a, like a creative paralysis because and other people I spoke to said they, 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 they had a similar sensation that we were being told so many different things about what was going to happen. This was an actual from right through from zombie apocalypse um, to the dawning of the age of Aquarius, you know, remember it was at one point the pandemic was going to have this huge positive effect. It was going to destroy capitalism um all this all all this was going around and so i was like i can't you know what i can't work on music because i've got no idea what world this record is going to be released into it was so disorientating um and it took me about six months to really get back on the on the on the on the on, on the train again with 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 writing and, and, and producing the record uh, but again, it's something that none of us can complain about because everyone had it so 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 difficult. Everyone's work was completely affected. But that um, we also didn't want to make anything that had a- any connection. We didn't want to make any art that had any connection to what was going on. We thought that, that those people who were doing it were making a mistake because everyone was in the in the same boat and nobody wanted to think about it. Nobody. Nobody wanted a you know concept album about isolation or you saw all these people making their Facebook lives and everything else. We stayed well away from it all because it was just look in a, in a short time, hopefully very short, everyone's just going to want to forget about this. And um, so we 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 more or less quarantined the album, the the, the writing of the album from any of these um, influences, even though it definitely left a shadow on 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 the work. It left a shadow on the work for us personally, but um, but we didn't allow anything to any of that dark to seep in. We've got enough dark to work with already. <laughs> we don't need any more. You having lived in Brazil for 10 years, and, and I think you had said Italy five years before that, and obviously other members of the band are spread out as well. Is there a way in which that that long distance collaboration almost prepared you for that moment? Yes, because we always had to do do it this way. It was just that it did become obviously more of a challenge. Um, you know, we maybe none of us, no more than three of us ever lived in the same city at the same time. Um, at the very beginning, three of us lived in Liverpool. At various moments, three of us might have lived in London. Um you know, people were spread out. The only thing that changed is just that the the flights got longer and more expensive whenever we wanted to get together and, and do something. But um, but yeah, this it, although it did, yeah, you're right, it did prepare us for it. Um, it was incredibly difficult because the rules would change. I mean, I, I went back to do some recording um, in 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 Liverpool with Helen, probably. Um, late 2020 and it was when things it seemed to be returning to vague normality and I spent Christmas at home and then on on Christmas Eve Brazil um, slapped like some kind of emergency order banning all flights and passengers from the UK to Brazil and the UK isn't really accustomed to this treatment. This is normally what the UK does to other countries. Uh, in, a, in a way, I was actually quite quite proud of Brazil for doing it. Um, 
but it left me stranded. Um, it stranded for about a month um, before I could before I could go home. Um, again, not the kind of thing that we'd complain about because everyone was in in I know know people in way worse situations than this. So that they they were stranded away from home for six months and things like that. But it did make this this record take twice as long. Having said that, I think that the record might be better because we had more time to 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 do it. You know, living through COVID in Brazil specifically and having to deal with. Bolsonaro and all of his shenanigans. And based on what you said about the end of capitalism, I suspect that we're probably on pretty, pretty much the same page about Bolsonaro and, and Lula. Yes. I, I, I have to ask though, you know, given, and, and this is going to date this specific conversation in time, but as we're recording this, you know, that, that uprising has, has very recently happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- this might, this is kind of my US centric view, but, you know, and I think rightfully to some degree, comparing it to what happened here on January 6th, um, Bolsonaro's living, living in Florida. Um, Lula, thankfully, is still in control. But what's the vibe down there? What's the feeling down there? It's more um, it's more one of nuisance than anything else. Those people, they're not serious people. It's, it's like it, it, it is um, the same as the capital invasion because it's based on the capital invasion. And he's being invi- advised by uh, Steve Bannon and these other ghouls, you know. Um, it's very much the, the same thing going on. That was, if nothing else, designed to destroy the positive images uh, that were generated by Lula's inauguration. Um, whether this was a serious gambit for an overthrow of the government, I don't think so. The government buildings were all empty. They chose a day where there was going to be nobody there. Um, unless the army came on board with it, um, there was no way that this was going to result in a, in a government overthrow. So these people are, um, unfortunately they created an image uh, uh, you know, so they, 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 they win this, uh, they often win in this semiotic war. They create the image of these green and yellow, uh, clad people, you know, all over the Congress building. And the impression that they want to give is that one of ungovernability, that Lula cannot govern. There's too many people hate him. There was a few thousand people. You know, you're talking about a few thousand people. The day after in Sao Paulo, all over the country, there was pro-democracy protests with each of them, more people than were in Brasilia smashing up the, the Congress that day. So I describe it as the moment, at the moment, one of nuisance. That's not to say that there wasn't a genuine coup threat. There was. There was until more or less right up to Lula being inaugurated. Um but the, the the protests that were happening after the election, they never reached critical mass and uh, the army didn't um, join them. But they did ha- apparently have a plan or sectors of the military did have a plan, which they abandoned on November the thir- 30th. So it was it was a very close thing. You know, it could have they could they could have intervened. But the other part of it is um, you don't have a. Latin American coup d'etat without the support of the United States. It doesn't happen. It is a very fair point. I mean, 
You know, I mean, I mean, this is, I think it was a joke of, I think it was Fidel Castro or someone, he said, you know why there's never been a coup in the United States? Because there's no U.S. embassy in the United States. <laughs> so, so all I can say is not, notwithstanding any, any, any reservations about Joe Biden or the state of the Democratic Party or anything like that, it's definitely, uh, um, definitely to the right of, 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 of my, you know, political um, view. It's 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 you know, it's a centrist. It's a centrist party. It's more or less what the Labour Party is in the UK now as well. But um, I have to say that thank God for Brazil's sake that Trump didn't win re-election because if Trump had won re-election, Bolsonaro would be in power now. So uh, sometimes you have to be thankful for these things, even though they might not match our expectations of uh, ideological purity. Another parallels, I think, similarly. The UK had Corbyn, which is, you know, and we had Bernie here. And and I think, you know, yeah. they kind of they ran a similar flank and ended up in a similar place, unfortunately. Yeah, they were generational opportunities. But I, I tried to stay positive about it, that it, it at least proved what could be done. It proved what when when presented with these policies and these ideas the electorate does generally respond positive to them. The only way, all you know, they'll, they'll use any any manner of character assassination or anything else to try and destroy them. So this is really what they did to Lula. I mean, Lula, you know, uh, people are very, are very afraid. Anyone talks about rigged elections or anything like that, they're very wary of of this kind of language now because of. Trump adopting it and Bolsonaro now, but let's be completely realistic. The night, the 2018 election in Brazil was rigged. They threw, they threw Lula in jail to stop him running. That's what it, that's what it was about. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it, it's, this has happened. This was enabled by character assassination for years and years and years in the media of a similar fashion, uh, to what happened to, to Bernie and, and Jeremy. Um, so I just hope that people are learning from this and that they're, they're coming up with, with, with strategies that can, um, that can sidestep it. Um, I, there was a hope really that I thought with, with Lula taking power that these kind of lawfare strategies wouldn't work anymore. That people were too aware uh, of, um, of, of the technique and the strategy, but I'm, I'm not convinced actually. I think they'll, they'll, they'll keep trying because, an enormous amount has been invested in um, this way of, of um, you know, waging low-level war against uh, foreign powers and manipulating their their um, you know their politics. So, not out of the woods, but I just say, you know what? Enjoy, enjoy. Go and watch the videos of Lula on 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 New Year's Day at his inauguration, and just enjoy that for the time being. At, at the moment, all they're trying to do is erase that from from memory. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, they're supposed to be. They uncovered another another coup plot tonight. Actually, that uh, the police are out and they're stopping cars and things. So I, we don't know. I mean, I, I you know, in a week's time, I might look tremendously naive, but. Um, uh, most of the people I know are still are still positive that we're going to weather this storm. So, the consequences are more global in the U.S. just because of you know the kind of outsized power that this country has. But the consequences are are dramatically different there be- because the opposition leader was was thrown in jail. It, it just it feels like there's a way in which things can really can 
go pear shaped in a in a much in a in a major way much more quickly in Brazil. Yeah, there's there's this is part of the reconstruction that's required. There's um you know not just what I mean the, the economy has been sacked, um, institutions have been damaged. Um, uh, you know, obviously, obviously, the environment, um, you know, and, and 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 social rights and so on. But there's a, there's a part of the rebuild is the institutional protection from something like this happening again, and that includes the the abuse of the the judiciary. Um, there's, there's there's whole layers of trust need to be rebuilt, um, and and they are they're they're doing it. They're well aware of what uh, of what needs to be done. I mean, I, I I actually I actually know Lula personally, um, by the way, um, and I'm incredibly proud of him. Um, Tell him to come on my podcast. <laughs> okay, I'll try my best. No, it's 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 amazing that you know. I mean, even when when all this stuff was kicking off first, like you know, sort. Of, Six or seven years ago, when when Dilma Rousseff was impeached, it was it was obvious what was going on there. Um, but I remember thinking, God, these like these these these, you know, seventy year old, eighty year olds are, are, are sitting back thinking, do we really have to do this again? Are you are you depending on us to get you out of this? These people who fought the dictatorship. Uh, and 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 them having to put this thing together, and it made me think that um my generation uh and not just in brazil everywhere we fell into a, a into a, a a trap of uh extreme complacency um maybe from maybe from the 90s the 90s onwards you know we it it when it felt like um everything was permanent um that we've basically done it now everything was just going to improve the end of history and all of that you know um and i think even if you even if you didn't agree with this you know uh, politically it's it still felt like there was you know a sense of comfort that that, that nothing major was going to was going to happen uh to dislodge any of our you know um our privileges and uh, and 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 even you know, not just in terms of law or, um, or, or or social security or, you know, just employment, anything, healthcare, anything, culturally as well, you know. I mean, I've watched in Brazil, I've watched them, you know, for four years or more of, like, intentional, systematic um, dismantling of the, of the kind of culture that me and, and the people I love you know uh live within um the you know the the culture war at its most extreme like like just literal physical destruction of of um of of progressive culture and its replacement with 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 this reactionary horror uh, i tell you what being in brazil to cut a long story short it's taught me a hell of a lot about my own country i now see i see my own country in very different terms um i see things that i hadn't seen before that are that they're just more obvious here because it's a newer country i think and a newer newer democracy we in the u.s have obviously had our i guess as i say outsized and and largely other than culture well even including culturally but are largely terrible influence but obviously yours dates back much further 
Yeah, I mean, it's like I guess I, I guess the equivalent would be yeah, McCarthyism or something like that. I guess that would be the the the, the historical parallel. Um, but yeah, these things weren't supposed to happen anymore, were they? And, and it is, it has been terrifying. But for, for me, I, I'm more optimistic now because I feel like um, I feel like we've been through it, and we only have improvement now. Uh, so I'm confident that you know uh, this artificial astroturf storm can be weathered. 